0: Hey church, good morning. I'm excited to get into the message today. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. A couple weeks ago, we, about, I think two weeks ago, we started a series called Love Youary. And we're following up and we're doing this study on love. And we're taking some time to really just dive into this characteristic and really explore who God is. Right? First John 4:16. It says, "We know how much God loves us. We've put our trust in his love. God is love. All who live in love live in God, and God lives in them." We're taking time to explore love because it is God. It is God, when you stop to take a second and to ponder who is God, what's the characteristic definition of God, what is his attributes, it all begins and ends in love. It's worth studying. Amen. Okay, great. Our mission statement is what? Do we remember? I heard vision. Vision is where we're going. Bring them in, raise them up, send them out. Mission is the vehicle to get there. How are we going to do that? The mission is connecting to people, or sorry, sorry, I messed it up. Connecting to God, people, purpose, and hope. Can we say that together? Connecting to God, people, purpose, and hope. And when I think of this message on love, today I'm really looking at this lens of how do we connect with people How do we connect with people? Because we all have people in our lives. We all treat them. We all have to deal with them. We have people we love and people we don't like to get along with and people we have to get along with and people we have to be around. So how do we connect with people? And this message really speaks into that. Last two weeks ago, when we did the first part of this message, the first part of this series, we really looked at that we are a Holy Spirit-filled church or at least that we have a desire and a purpose to seek after God's presence in this church. We believe in the presence of the Spirit and believe in the the giftings of the Spirit and believe in the manifestations of the Spirit. But last time we talked about how we could have the most magnificent manifestations of the Spirit, right? We could speak in every language, earth and heavenly. We could have prophetic words and knowledge of all God's secret plans. We could have the ability to move mountains. The greatest among sacrifices, we get everything we have, we could give it away. Sacrifice even our own body, but without love, it would be meaningless. All of that is a way to love each other or love the body of Christ. Amen? Without love, it's meaningless. And so we're starting off today. We Last time we talked about 1 Corinthians 1 through verse 3. And today we're going to cover verses 4 through 7. And I love how chapter 13, it actually starts at the very, very end of chapter 12. 1 Corinthians twelve thirty one says, but now, but now, right? Here's the main show. But now, let me show you a way of life that is best of all. And so that's what we're talking about today. And so we really want to jump into this and explore this topic a little bit more. And so the first and I think probably most natural question that comes up is, what is love? When I say that, how many of you started hearing the song in your head? Okay, a couple of <laughs> What is love? Okay, so... What is love? And I wonder, you know, this is really a hard kind of a one-way conversation right now, but if I was sitting down with you and we're drinking coffee, obviously a pour-over, okay, and we're just sitting down black, no other way to drink it, one origin, great, okay, we're all on the same page there. If we were sitting down and having coffee, I wonder what your definition is of love. I wonder if maybe you would respond with a story of a time that you felt especially loved, and it characterizes it to you. I wonder if it's a feeling for you, that skipping of your heart, maybe a butterfly in your stomach. I wonder if it's for you in action. Love is a verb, as DC Talks says. I wonder if it's one of the five love languages for you. I wonder if it's one of C.S. Lewis' explorations of the Greek four, four words for love, phileo or agape. I wonder what it is for you. But today, we get the benefit of Paul's writings, and we get to look and see what was Paul's definition of love. So if you turn with me, you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to jump right into verse 4. 1 Corinthians verse 4, and we're going to read through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every situation. I love this. Just curious, how many people had this passage or some part of it read out loud or referenced at your wedding or anniversary? Okay, a lot of people, us too. <laughs> like It's just such a powerful, powerful passage. It's the one we always just gravitate because it's just so beautiful and so rich. And the first thing I notice is when we read just those three verses there is that there's a long list of the things that love does not do attributes that are not uh, not given to love right And we have that love is not jealous it's not boastful it's never proud it's not rude it doesn't demand its own way it's not irritable i don't know about you that's a hard one for me it's not irritable it keeps no records of wrongs it does not rejoice about injustice it does not give up and it does not lose faith all these things that love does not do or is not in love and then we get this very short list of the things that love does do, rejoices when truth wins out, is always hopeful, and endures every circumstance. But when I've been sitting with this passage for the last couple of weeks and just mulling on it and thinking about it, something that hit me is that there's only two words that actually define what love is to Paul. Love is patient and kind. Everything else is either a thing that it is or it is not, or an expression or a non-expression of love, but there's only two words that express love, patience and kindness. And if we could reference back just a few minutes ago, I wonder if that lines up with your internal definition of love. I wonder how did you define love to yourself? Are those the words that come to mind? Patience and kindness. If I was Paul, I don't know if I would write that. That's not normally the first things that come to mind. The first thing that kind of comes to my mind in the the world, the Bible world, is I think of Jesus. I think of the sacrifice of Jesus, right? 1 John 4 9 through 10. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. John 15, 12-13, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then obviously John three sixteen. for this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent His Son to the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. When I think of these expressions of love, when I think of this idea of sacrifice, these big shows of affection, and the things that we have, uh, when I think of love, I think of like all of the big ways we see it. I, I think of the movies, I think of the big just... Stories we tell ourselves and stories we tell our kids. I think of if you have kids or if you've ever been at lunch or on a date or that first time you start telling somebody about when you first started dating somebody and you start telling about the first things that attracted you to them and the things you just think of all those big things. Those, those big stories, the stories you tell again and again and again. And patience and kindness just doesn't seem to match up to that big sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus. You know, we're not um, huge on Valentine's Day. Uh, We usually, our normal tradition is that we just order out food that we wouldn't normally spend on our children. Like, they can have hot dogs, but we're going to order, you know, pad thai or something. So we order out, and once we sneak them off to bed, then we just celebrate and we just hang out and just order, dine in or whatever, okay? But there was one year early on into our marriage where I was like, I'm going to get brownie points this year. Like, I'm going to get brownie points. And so I went out, and I just did the classic, like, every kind of, like, classic gift for Amy. But I did it supersized. Okay, so I got chocolate, but not just chocolate. I got the five-pound bar brick of dark chocolate. And I got flowers, not just flowers, though, the eight-foot-tall daisies, okay, or sunflowers. No, I didn't do that. But I did get the postcard, okay, and I'm talking poster boards, you know, three-foot-tall card for her that I wrote with. I had to, like, paint the letters on because it's so big. And then I got her, like, a three- or four-foot teddy bear, okay, just huge, just over the top, just, like, the things that you would get when you're, like, 13 or something for somebody, just, like, over the top, okay, But you know what? The chocolate's gone. Amy snuck the card into the recycling when I wasn't looking. I snuck the bear into my in-law's basement when they weren't looking, because who has room for a four-foot bear in their house? All those big expressions, the things of just ways we want to see love, just make it sexy and amazing and a good story, all those things are gone. And the real test of our love is the day-to-day moment interactions we have with each other. How in the moment when nobody's looking? I'm really good when I know Valentine's Day is coming up. I'm really good to express love on Christmas morning, but how am I with my kids when I get home after a hard day of work? How am I with my wife when I'm, I'm just lacking of sleep and haven't had that first cup of coffee yet? And we begin to be tested in our love and it comes back to paul's verse are you patient and are you kind and as i've sat with this a little bit more and started studying it, i realized how well even jesus's sacrifice is wrapped up into this definition of patience and kindness so the greek word i and i'm not going to pretend that i can read greek fluently okay i took a couple courses in college and I, i'm good enough to be able to use strong's dictionary Okay, and I can understand that, but I can't speak it fluently. Like, don't come and talk to me Greek after this. But I do know, I looked up patience, and patience in the Greek is, mm, I'm going to try it. Ready? Makrothumeo. Can you say that? Makrothumeo. Okay, good deal. <laughs> Darlene, great job. I heard you. One of the definitions for patience or Makrothumeo is long suffering. And if you use a more literal translation or your Bible or an older translation in your Bible, you will read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. It says, love suffers long and is kind. Commentator, uh, commentator Albert Barnes, he said, The word used here, "makrothymeo," denotes longamity, slowness to anger or passion, long-suffering, patient endurance, forbearance. It is opposed to haste. I don't know if you're like me, but I have no idea what longamity means, so I looked up longamity as well. And longamity is from this, uh, uh, basically means patience or long-suffering, but it's composed of two Latin words, which is length or long and soul. And I love this idea when I start thinking of patience, that patience is this idea of bearing somebody's that hurts you. Bearing with them. Starting to long suffer for them, or to start stretching your soul for them. I love that idea of actually extending—not just your body, not just your words, but your very soul for somebody. Going wide and going big. I think of somebody. What do we say when somebody just uh, just unleashes on you? They s- snapped, right? But when we are stretched and we start bearing and we start bending and we start bearing somebody, we start seeing patience and we start seeing love. And I love that idea of that. As a parent, I can tell you there is nothing quite as long-suffering as a four-year-old who wants to put their shoes and coat on by themselves. There is nothing quite as hard to love through As a task that should take tops one and a half minutes, 90 seconds, that literally takes 15 minutes. And in the process of trying to get to church on time, trying to get to school on time, trying to get to the sport on time, trying to get just out the door, just get out the door. It's so hard to start practicing patience and an attitude of love. But in those moments, we're tested. Are you patient? Are you kind? Not Valentine's Day, not Christmas, not birthday. In those moments, the day-to-day moments of life, are you patient and are you kind? I love what um, Albert says. He says that love, love is opposed to haste. You know, the thing is that probably most of us are too hurried or too busy to really love well. The opposite of love its not hate, it's hurry. Are we too hurried to love well? John Mark Comer, he writes a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I really cannot recommend it enough. It's a basically a basic primer to resetting your spiritual foundation and connection to God and slowing down and becoming awake and alive and rested and aware of God's presence and practices. It's just an incredible book. I really suggest it. But in that book, he, he uh, opens it up with this conversation from Pastor John Ortberg and theologian Dallas Willard and John would mentor under Dallas Willard. And so in one of those conversations, Pastor John said to pa- uh, Dallas, he said, "What do I need to do? What do I need to do to become the me I want to be?" Dallas gave a long pause and a thought. He said, "You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life." John, "Okay. What else?" Another long pause in Dallas. There is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of your spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Mark Comer says that both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and to even your own soul. And lastly, Carl Jung, he says, hurry is not of the devil hurry is the devil. And we learn this from a really young age. Aesop's fable. What's one that comes immediately to mind? Come on, let's go. It's like I paid her to do that. I didn't. (laughs) The tortoise and the hare. And from a young age, we learn that the pride and hurry does not beat the slow pace and patience of determination. Yet, we read those things but that's not the things we applaud. That's not the things that we hold up high. 1 John two fifteen through 17, it says this, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. And for the world only offers a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but they're from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. And here John lays out these three things. The lust of pleasure, the lust of our eyes, the lust of achievement and possessions. And everything we applaud in our culture seeks after those things. We applaud the people that can live on no sleep and accomplish great things. We applaud the people who can leave a legacy and do amazing things that no man could ever do before. We applaud the mothers that can be an influencer and raise their kids and send them out and always look put together and the house is always clean and never fall apart. We applaud the people that just have it all together and can do it all and they seem like they have more than 24 hours in the day. But Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wrong. To fight and work for a life, to live a life of love, is an in- intentional separation from what our culture applauds as good and worthy and is something that we should aim to live our lives after. Everybody tells us that accomplishment matters, that we should make a difference globally, locally, make something of ourselves. But really quickly, we learn that we can't do that at a slow and methodical pace. Really quickly, we learn that you have to have an unrelenting will, a desire to earn and accomplish, and to run as fast as possible. Because it's a competition, everybody else is doing it. So if you don't get to the gym on your summers off, and when the team doesn't show up, you're not gonna get the scholarship. If you don't get to the job an hour before your boss, and an hour after everybody else gets home, you're not gonna get the promotion. If you don't put, and you quickly realize that people are hindering us from accomplishment, because people are messy, they take time, they take our time, they take precious time away they take it away from our agenda they take it away from the list and to do things and the things that are goals and it takes time they can derail your not just a day not just an hour but they could derail your whole month but when I think of Jesus I don't think of a frenzied pace of accomplishment Listen to this. When I started thinking of Jesus, and I started thinking of hurry, and I started thinking about who Jesus was, and I revisited uh, uh, Pastor John's book on hurry and stuff, this is the kind of Jesus that we serve. It's a man that would send everybody else to the grocery store and hang out the water cooler and sip water with a reject from town. It was a man that as he was up and preaching in the synagogue and they wanted to keep all the kids away from him because he doesn't have time for that. He'd say, no, bring the kids to me. Put them on their lap and give them time. This is my kind of guy that took a lot of naps. Even to the point of like, hey, Jesus, there's a storm, wake up. And he's sleeping in the boat. He's the kind of guy that ate and drank and hung out so much. The Matthew eleven nineteen 19, it says he was, they called him a glutton and a drunkard because he just hung out with his friends and spent time with them. He's the kind of man that an important dinner party with an extremely important religious political figure will give time to a broken woman who came in and just wiped his feet with tears and perfume. Unhurried. Slow, present, and aware. He's a man that as he gained, as he gained awareness, as he gained popularity, he also increased his time away into the wilderness, the eremos, to the time of where he separated himself to be alone in silence and solitude with God. He was a man that would not sacrifice personal relationship with God for accomplishment here on earth. And I start thinking about Jesus and start putting that against Paul's definition. Love is patient. Love is kind. And it starts working for me. This is the same Jesus that teaches Mark 8, 36 through 37. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? I wonder how much of Jesus's ministry was intentional and how much of it was just that he was aware of the needs and the people around him, that he was just present with them. I wonder how much of it was just that he cared about the people he interacted with. He heard the cries of the funeral parade, and so he went over to comfort the mother He, on his way to Jairus' house to heal his daughter, he's stopped by a woman that's sick and he just gives her time. When he hears about his deep, close friend Lazarus, he's detained for four days. I wonder how much of Jesus' ministry was just being intentional to the people he was in contact with. Instead of intentionally trying to preach at this town, preach at this town, preach at this town, go here, go here, go here, got to do this seminar, got to read this book, got to write this manual, got to send this script, got to... I wonder how much of it was just he was present with the people he was around him. Dallas Willard again, the first act of love is always the giving of attention. Awareness, though, takes tremendous patience. You know, Amy has a friend, uh, her name's Katie, she lives in the south, but occasionally she comes back and visits, and she was up last month, and uh, I've never seen somebody that just gives so much presence and awareness to little children. She just has such an incredible tolerance and love for little kids. And so I get home. I'm just impressed because I see all these toys scattered out, and I see Amy by herself in the kitchen. Where's Katie? I don't know. The kids got her. And as soon as she just locks eyes and starts giving and talking to the kids, they just open up. They respond to it like crazy. Hey, look at this. Look at, yeah, look at this. Look at what I did. Yeah, it's macaroni, and it's supposed to be my mom or something. I made that at school. And look at this. This is our bed. This is where we sleep every night. This is also where we get out of bed every night. This is like our bed, and this is our toys. And they take you everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And as soon as you start giving your awareness to somebody, as soon as you start being patient to be in somebody's presence, we respond to that. It feels like love. Have you ever been in a conversation where somebody's just doing this the whole time? Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, you should just go see a counselor, okay? Like, have you ever been in that? It doesn't feel like love. But have you ever had the friend where you go show up for coffee and they say, okay, phone's off, down, can't see it. How are you doing? We freak out when we get that kind of attention. You almost don't know what to do with it. It's just this kind of flustering. You don't know what to do. That's why America... It's known as the Chatty Cathys. If we can lock you down in a train or a plane or a car or a bar, if we're paying you to fly us or to drive us or to sit with us, and you're waiting, then we just pff, spill all of our story. All of our life comes out of us because as soon as we get somebody locked in and with their attention, all that pent upness that we've been holding back just spills out. Love is patient. Love is kind. John Mark Comer says, hurry kills relationships. Love takes time. Hurry doesn't have it. And 80% of loving well is just being emotionally healthy and spiritually awake. I don't know if this has real significant impact, but Chinese words and letters, alphabet, all these little pictures. And the two pictures that they attribute to busyness is the picture of the heart and the picture of killing. I wonder what that says to us. Busyness, the picture of a heart and the picture of killing. What is hurry doing to your soul? How is it eroding or taking away your ability to be a loving and a present and an attentive and a kind person? Love is patient. Love comes from that unhurried and rested soul. Watch yourself this week. Watch yourself when you get hurried. Watch yourself when you're late to work or have to make it somewhere on the road or running short on time or trying to get out the door and your kids won't go or you show up someplace and somebody's late. Watch your response to those people around you, to the people on the road, to the people in your life. Is it ever love in hurry? Have you ever had a loving moment in hurry? John Mark says this, and I would say it's the same for myself, that my most unloving moments, my most hateful moments happen when I'm in a hurry. Happens when I'm busy. Not where I'm patient and aware and present. And Thank God that he's patient with me. I think about all how we started out with all those verses of sacrifice that Jesus came and gave his son isn't that just an expression of God's patience for us? Isn't it just an expression, if I was God and as soon as Adam messed up, isn't our natural reaction just to reject that person? You know what, I'm done. We're going to start over. Nope, you hurt me, we're done. Yet God, after year, after year, after year, this is 2 Peter 3.9, it says the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. I don't know about you, but I get those. uh, I I stopped posting on Facebook, I don't know how many years ago, but apparently I was still posting about 10 years ago, because I still get pop-ups every now and again of like, here's the thing that you posted 10 years ago. And I look at those, I got one today, and I was looking, and I was like, man, so much has happened in a decade of my life. So much has happened. And the person I was 10 years ago, oh, my goodness, the, the work that God has done on me in 10 years. It's taken my whole lifetime to be the person I am right now. Thank God he's patient with me. Yet how quickly do I move from that and think, man, it took me this many years to become this type of person, and then you just want to speed everybody else up to get to the level I think they should be at. Why are you this way? Who hurt you? Why are you so broken? Can you just be better? I think about how God dealt with me and how love is patience and just working with where people are at. I have no idea the story, interactions you have with people that just can feel so hateful, so hurtful, so just who hurt you kind of things and we have no idea the context to their life. I have no idea the journey they're on in their spiritual walk. I have no idea the conversations they're having with God. Thank God that he didn't just forget me at the beginning because it's taken me a long time, many years, many hurt relationships to be the person I am right now. Church, we spent the first 30 minutes talking about patience I have about three minutes to talk about kindness. But I think we can, I think we can do it. I think we can do it. So love is patient, love is kind. This, kind. this word for kindness is Christos. And it's this idea that we don't really have a good translation for in our uh, English language. Kindness is this idea of, um, it's morphing kind of two ideas together. And it's this morphing of God's kindness or goodness and his gentleness for us. And it's this idea of this goodwill towards other people, the spreading of God's goodness for you. And the picture I get when I think of this, I think of the first time if you've ever been to the hospital, you've had had a friend or you've had a child or you've been visited or you went to the in-laws and they had a new baby, that first time you hold a brand new baby. And you just, they're untainted yet. They don't know the evils of the world. They haven't done their first sin yet. You know, I remember when my kids got to the old enough point, where, like, oh, you have a sin nature. I can see it. Yeah, I just, that was a deliberate choice. I know you. Okay, so before all of that, and you just have such care for them. You think through what they need. You want to hold their neck and support them. And are you holding it right? And I have friends that didn't be around babies a lot. And we've had three. And so they come and visit us or whatever. They kind of just stand like this. Okay, take the baby. Take it away. Yeah, don't let me. Okay. And they just kind of stand because they don't know what to do because you don't want to drop them. Thank God babies were made to bounce. They're fine. They'll be fine. No, I'm just kidding. I think of this idea as that God made his, his goodwill, his kindness towards you. And so love is patient, the opposite of hurry, and love is kind. Combined with that patient aspect, I think this is all the definition that encompasses all those attributes of love and of God. I think of God and his sacrifice for us and how he was patient, waiting and working with us, developing us, sending the right people the time. Calling and calling and calling again and again and again and again, we mess up. Again and again and again, Israel messes up. It's why I love the Bible so much. It's basically just a repeating story of people of God that hear him, mess up, call out to God. God sends a savior of some type, a judge or a ruler or a warlord or a leader, and he sends them in a move of God, and then the whole process repeats. They forget. They reject. They reject and again, and again, but yet God is patient, and God is kind to us. I'd actually like to move into just a little bit of an interactive part of the story. I found this story, uh, or, I, or I was literally, I was just looking for this particular story, I think summarizes and shows God's patience and his kindness to us so well. The band, you guys can actually keep start coming forward. This is starts in John chapter seven and finishes in John eight eleven. And this is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And I'd love you if you wouldn't just indulge me to take a moment. We can turn worship lighting on. If you take a moment and to just close your eyes as I'm reading the story to you, and allow God to place you in the story. Maybe you're the accused. Maybe you're the woman in the story and you can think of the hurtful things that have been spoken over you. The relationships that that were so hurried and fractured and wounded you. Maybe your place is in the crowd and maybe you're the person calling out somebody else in your hurry and in your hate. And so just take a second right now and invite the Holy Spirit and invite God to start speaking to you before we read this story. John 7, verse 53. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman then jesus stood up he said to the woman where are your accusers didn't even one of them condemn you no lord she said jesus said neither do i go and sin no more holy spirit i just pray that you start working into our hearts and mind right now I pray you would just start helping our spirit and our, 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 our soul, God, just open up to you in this moment, Father God. Where are we at in this moment, Father God? Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be prideful and hard and, we, and dull of hearing, God, but you would open up our ears, God. Would you show us, would you let us to be vulnerable enough to show us the moments, God, where we in our pride and our hurry were hurtful and hateful and unloving, God. Lord, would you begin to just expose the moments of unkindness in our life, Father? I don't know where you're at right now, and I don't know if you're feeling the guilt of one caught and accused or the guilt of one in the crowd and calling out. But I would just ask you to think about this part Then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Would you just right now just take a second and turn your attention to Jesus? Whatever just came up in this sermon, whatever's come up in this uh, whole service, would you just take that to Jesus right now? and approach Him. If you can imagine Him sitting on the ground and then standing up and turning His eyes to you. What is He saying to you? As you turn your eyes from left and right and realize the accusers are gone, how does that feel to you? There's only one person in your life that has the right to judge you, and that's Jesus. And he chose to provide a bridge to reconnect to God and to find forgiveness. band's going to lead us here in a little bit back into worship but we in a little bit i'd like to open up the altars i think there's power in response to god's word not necessarily to what i'm saying but what to god is saying to you in your seat there's power in responding to that and so i want to provide a space where you can do that and so i just want to open the altar today during worship the altar team will be up here if you would like prayer you can go to them if you don't and you just want to come to the altar and pray with God and have a moment with the Holy Spirit then come but if you find yourself in that crowd of accusers if you find all those moments of hurry and hate coming up in your life come and lay them here because you don't have to walk out those doors with that there's grace to go over this again and again and again if you find yourself in sin, you find yourself in that place of there's something separating you from God. I invite you to come up and repent and restore and go and sin no more. And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, I'd like you to come up and to talk to me. I'd like to have a conversation with you simply of what that looks like and where to go from this moment. I just want to read this one prophetic word over you from Ezekiel. It says this, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. Your filth will be washed away. You will no longer worship idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Jesus, name.